As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This week's Law & Order Marathon winner is Megan Lugo of San Antonio, Texas. Megan will get a marathon decal showing. She watched 26.2 hours of her favorite crime show. To be next week's winner, sign up at lawandorderpodcast.com. I'm Kevin Flynn with Rebecca Lavoie and Amelia McDonald-Perry, and these are their stories. You think you know who did it, but you don't know who did it. Law and order, law and order, law and order. It's no ordinary police procedural, baby. It's the FNOG. Welcome to These Are Their Stories, the podcast about network TV's most enduring crime franchise and the real-life cases that inspired their shows. I'm Kevin Flynn. Each podcast will break down an episode from either Criminal Intent, SVU, or Original Recipe. And today we're looking at SVU Season 17, Episode 12, a misunderstanding. Joining me to do just that is true crime author and host of the podcast Crime Writers On, my wife, Rebecca Lavoy. Hello, Rebecca. I'm not 100% sure I gave you my consent to introduce me, but uh, thanks for doing so. I don't know. You never said no. <laughs> oh, God. And rounding out the panel, it's take your hand off your face. And rounding out the panel <laughs> is our special guest from the Undisclosed podcast, Undisclosed The Killing of Freddie Gray. It's journalist Amelia McDonald Perry. Hi, Amelia. Hello. So as journalists like us, did you get your law degree by watching Law & Order and other crime TV shows? Basically. That and like reading Colin Miller's blog. Basically <laughs> where I got, I got my law degree, which is it's just so much cheaper, let me just tell you. <laughs> it is funny, like when you're, you're, uh, you're covering a case, dealing with the police, or you're covering a trial, and there's like something that you that comes up in sort of the back of your head, you remember, I saw this on... Brady. Yeah, Law and Order. What's interesting when you're covering the police, too, as we've kind of found from doing this case, is that the police don't know the law very well. Like, really don't. (laughs) It's kind of amazing. Honestly, I'm not trying to knock the police here. You have your own podcast to do that. Yes, (laughs) but I will say that like a lot of the the cops, when they are sort of called to testify and they're asked questions about like basic sort of procedure, evidence collection and stuff, they're like, uh, I don't know. We put it in our pockets. (laughs) We we used our best judgment. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, oh, crap. (laughs) That's how things go so bad. Now, Amelia, you've been writing for uh, Rolling Stone about crime and some other publications. Now, SVU works best when the cops get the bad guys. Are those the kind of crime stories people still want to listen to? I think that, like, I think everybody wants the cops to get to the bad guys. The question is, are the cops getting the bad guys? Or are they getting somebody who is the easiest to think of as the bad guy, you know? So I think people do want to find out who the bad guy is and they want the police to catch them, but they want to feel confident that they've nailed it. And why do you think... And SVU gets it right, so... SVU gets it right? Most of the time. (laughs) Although sometimes at the last minute they're like, oops, actually, twist, (laughs) who's actually the best friend. (laughs) Or or like 10 years later, it's like, that old rape case is back to haunt us again, and it wasn't actually that guy. (laughs) And and it's always Uh, like, oh, sorry, bygones. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) There's never any like civil lawsuit for- uh, Never. Yeah. 
The Justice Department never comes into the 2-7 and asks for... No, yeah. they never do. Yeah. They should do a whole like law and order civil settlements where it's like all the secret, <laughs> all, all the people they secretly pay off. Everybody who gets slammed into a wall by Elliot Stabler. <laughs> I mean, seriously. <laughs> oh, now, Amelia, do you have a favorite detective team? Favorite law and order detective team. You know what? I really like... Munch and Ice Tea. Finn. Yeah, but then I also really love Olivia and Stabler. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, doesn't everybody kind of love Olivia yes. and Stabler? Yeah, I mean, a does, little too much. Is there much. anybody on this planet who doesn't love Stabler? I don't love Stabler, but I do. <gasps> really? <laughs> but I, 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 I love your first. I, mean, I hate pick, him, though. but I love him. Munch and Finn. I mean, I, love I think them. not yeah. everybody goes there. But as far as like when they're following the B story, yes, it's yes. It, it's always very entertaining. The two of them together well, yeah, they've are got incredible. A good one. Yeah, and they're funny, and they're kind of like, uh, you know, an odd couple in a weird way. I mean, they're both sort of strange, but very different from each other. You throw them together, and it's just sort of like, hmm, odd partnership, but okay. We have an episode set aside, and we will do it one day, (laughs) from season two, which is the one where Munch and Finn essentially go on a road trip, (laughs) and they share a motel room together. (laughs) The best scene in SVU history. (laughs) And and Munch is dressed in his black satin, all-black satin pajamas, and uh, Finn comes out wearing a track suit and a do-rag. Yes. And I just said, this this is precious. <laughs> it's peak Munch and Finn. It is. And now, do you have, in the Law & Order universe, a favorite prosecutorial team? Favorite Law & Order District Attorney Prosecutorial Team. I mean... Sam Waterston. I don't. Like, who do we, he was always paired with somebody. They kind of switched it up though. Sometimes, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. always. <laughs> who was it? I'm trying to think. Who, I'm trying to remember who is like best sort of you know co counsel was. I just love him. I yeah. can just watch Sam Waterston all the time. I often we could take Sam Waterston plus one. That's a that's an acceptable <laughs> answer. I will tell you, I don't like the redhead woman. Who, Casey from yes. SVU? Okay. Not interested. Yeah. She annoys me. She's just so hardened. And you know what it is? Maybe it's just my bias against prosecutors in general. Like, I, I feel like when you have an amazing prosecutor, they're like a gem. But often, I, I don't know, maybe it's just through the kind of like writing I do. I'm often so disappointed in prosecutors. So I have a natural sort of inclination not to like them on TV, too. And I feel like Casey sort of fulfills my sort of stereotype of like kind of a hardened kind of bitch whereas Sam Watterson's like still so cuddly and dad like now Amelia you do realize that Casey is not a real person right (laughs) wait what (laughs) (laughs) now let's look at the first half of this episode season 17 episode 12 a misunderstanding remember we're going to be talking about fictional detectives investigating a fictional sexual offense if you consider that particularly heinous, you may want to try another of our episodes. Barely fictional. We see prep school <laughs> freshman Abby getting a text message from senior stud Chris asking her to a party. After taking selfies of them making out, the tipsy couple retreat to the school dark room where the heavy petting gets a little too heavy. At home, Abby is upset but responds warmly to Chris's goodnight text. Later, defense shark Rita Calhoun asks Olivia to investigate Abby's rape which she waited to report for several days. The girl says Chris got to third base, then blasted on her dress, though she froze up and never said anything about whether she consented or not. Chris seems surprised Abby considered their hookup an assault, and while both teens are reluctant to pursue it, their rich parents and expensive lawyers 
are more than ready to go to war. So, what's your take on the boy? He's privileged but not arrogant. No record straight A's waiting on an early decision from Stanford. He seems genuinely surprised by the allegations. Okay, so it sounds like a teenage he said she said. It's more like her parents say, his parents say. Chris's mom, he's her only son, the golden boy. And the father of a teenage virginal daughter, like my dad with my sisters, if a guy so much as looked at one of them, it's rape. Meanwhile, back at the prep school, Finn and Sergeant Redshirt learns that Chris <laughs> was part of a secret group called the Cherry Pickers Club. Guys earned points for every girl they deflowered, and before Abby, Chris was scoreless. Now, we are going to obviously, like every episode, get to the end and talk about the rip from the headline story. And right. it's still very fresh because... Well, here we're, we're talking from last season's <laughs> last season's uh, SVU, and this case is still going on. And as Rebecca will say, this is a story that the real story is something that she covered. So we're going to try very hard to separate this part of the discussion, right. the fictional episode discussion from what happened right, in real but, life. Yeah, but can I just add, just add something to that? You may. You know, you talked about sort of the opening scene and the way they set up, you know, the going to the dance and the scene. So I don't know exactly when the filming of this episode took place as compared to the trial in the real case that mm. uh, this this was based on. And I should just say this. This is why it's going to be difficult to separate and why you had to say that. The details in this episode are incredibly close to the details in the real case in a way that makes me feel it, it colored it for me I have to say so but I promise I will do my best to just be like hey that girl was a bad actress I promise <laughs> <laughs> okay guys so this episode opens almost like a criminal intent episode where we see what's going down it's not a whodunit mm-hmm are the writers starting at a bad point if this story's conflict is going to be a philosophical discussion on teenage consent and not a dragnet? We get the whole picture. We see the entire thing. And it's kind of graphic in like a weird, teen, sexy kind of way. And we do see all sides. And yeah, I do think it sort of ruins opportunities for later ambiguity. Wait, it's all done. Not going there. Sorry. I feel nice. Uh, Is that better? Uh, not so hard. Oh, you're so hot, Abby. I don't know. It just it made me feel real ooky. The whole opening of this episode. Not gonna lie. And, and I think a lot of it ends up being not so much about who it was because it's clear. Right. But you know, it is really questions about consent. And so, from a narrative point. If the only question really is about consent and how that's playing out with our characters, it seems like both Abby and Chris seem to do the wrong thing at the wrong time to make it worse. It's hard because it's such a complex issue. I mean, in some ways it's very complex and in some ways it's very simple. And, you know, these are issues that I've written about quite a bit in my past sort of lady blogging career. Um, <laughs> lady blogging. <laughs> you know, when you're a lady blogger, you end up writing about rape quite a bit. I hate to say it, but it's And what, it's uh, feminine hygiene products? <laughs> <laughs> and that, and like Ryan Gosling, you know. <laughs> That's basically on the docket. And there's some things you want to be very clear about with it, like that character and, you know, whatever real circumstance she was based on is I found very clear in the sort of opening scene where she goes down to the room with him whatever the dark room 
See what and develops. Yes. <laughs> yes, it does develop. And I didn't like in that first initial scene, I wasn't feeling any sort of like it didn't feel like a mutual like confusion to me. It felt like he was being pushy quite um, and that she was super uncomfortable, which is why the where it ends up going in the episode, it ends up being a little bit more muddied. And that felt like you were supposed to feel a little bit more sympathetic towards him. And I I didn't know where that came from because I was not feeling sympathetic for him at all in that initial scene. And so this aftermath of being like, oh, but, you know, he thought she really wanted it. <laughs> Dude. It seems, you know, and I, I think about some, even some uh, – SVU episodes from this season where they, you know, certainly want to explore the human drama of connections between men and women and what goes wrong and what what is a crime and whatnot. But how do you walk that fine line and not come off as being rape apologists? Is it possible to do that well, that's in a serious way? Yeah, that's what's so difficult about this particular episode to me. And I don't want to say they're rape apologists. However, one of the things that this show, and especially Mariska Hargitay uh, as an actress and a like... And as a director yes, of this episode. Yes. One of five or six episodes she's done. very open about is that the difference that this show makes in people's perceptions mm-hmm. of sexual assault, and they've done actual studies, not the show, but like real sociologists have done studies among college students that show that people who watch this show have a greater awareness of the boundaries and about sexual assault and about what consent is. So this episode, I don't want to say they're being rape apologists. I think they're trying to say something about a digital communication and the way teenagers talk and and always sort of feel like they have to, you know, fit in. I think it was right. supposed to be about that, but yeah, it just came off well, there was super that, weird. There was that whole thing in the beginning where she gets the text and her friend it says like ROH and she and her friends like that means um that means he likes you and I was like ROH are you horny <laughs> like <laughs> or are you age or whatever yeah and I was like the girl clearly didn't know what it meant just the way she didn't know like the guy I remember the, there's a part where the boy says you know everybody knows when you go down the dark room like that means you wanna you know and it's like <laughs> but did she know that like right. see I think that they could have renamed the dark room the F stop. It would work both ways. <laughs> oh, my God. That's a, that's good, though. Now, Amelia, we've got uh, two sets of rich parents here. Are, are they making the situation about themselves instead of the kids? Yes, and I love the fact that that's what always happens on <laughs> Law & Order. The rich parents are always the worst. Yeah, they really the are. worst. Don't threaten my son. This girl's slandering him. We need to fight this. Mr. Barr, but what if I just say sorry to Abby and her family? You have, uh, have nothing oh, to be sorry not. Let's go. And, you know, that's, I think, what I didn't love about the way this episode went at the end is that I felt like the parents throughout were, were these kind of caricatures. And then I felt like by the end, the teenagers become real caricatures, too. Um, just and sort of wraps up very weird and quickly and sort of ambiguously, but in like an uncomfy way at the end, instead of in a sort of like nuanced, thoughtful sort of way. Right, right. Well, it's time for Hey, It's That Guy. <laughs> hey, it's that guy. <laughs> yes. uh, we certainly have some familiar guest stars. We have Elizabeth Marvel back as defense attorney Rita Calhoun, and she's pitted against fellow recurring attorney John Buchanan, played by Delaney Williams. I'm here representing the Stuarts. Victim advocacy, that can't be well. It's pro bono. Not all of us have to worry about our next meal. But for our Hey, It's That Girl. Hey, it's 
that girl. <laughs> Let's look at the two judges. It was a brief appearance, but who recognized the arraignment judge? Rebecca, give me the name of the actress. It was Maria from Sesame Street. <laughs> was it? It's Sonia Manzano. Sonia is, that's right, right. Right, she is Maria from Sesame Street. Yeah. <laughs> Chris Roberts, you are charged with one count of attempted rape and two counts of sexual misconduct and forcible touching. How do you plead? Not guilty on all counts, Your Honor. She's wow. made. She's made seven appearances on SVU as Judge Gloria Pepitone. Listen, her name may be Sonia Manzano. But she's Maria. Jesus Christ, yeah. is she Maria? You recognized her. She wasn't even on camera. That's Maria. She <laughs> clearly has a very wide range as an actress. She does. she does. She's a very interesting person. Yeah. And, she was and, on BJ and the Bear. Who can name the actress who took the bench as trial judge Felicia Cantano? God, I didn't even like look at closely at her face. I know that she was on... I, I, okay, you, you, can't, know, you can't name her. You know can't how you, you know how you always make fun of. I always make fun of you for not having watched The West Wing when it was on because you yeah. were too busy watching the Drew Carey show. Yeah. Well, I didn't have <laughs> HBO when The Sopranos were on, but I know that she was in The Sopranos, but I don't know the actress's name or the character she played. Right, it, it's Adia Turturro. Oh, Ida. Oh, A I D A. Isn't Ida Turturro? Ada Turturro. Isn't she John Turturro's sister or something? Is she? Yeah, she played Tony Soprano's sister, right? Members of the jury, have you reached your verdict? We have, Your Honor. On the felony count of attempted rape, how do you find? Yeah, she played Janice. Oh, which is, yeah. Which is, I mean, pretty ironic because Janice was also a judgy bitch. So. <laughs> oh she had some amazing scenes, though. Yes, her, she did. And, oh, yes. Yeah. I was going to say something, but it's probably not appropriate for this audience. <laughs> <laughs> well, she also has made seven appearances on SVU as a judge. Really? Yeah. So uh, that's good. It's uh, Sisters are doing it for themselves. I want to be an SVU as a judge. That's a good gig. It seems to Seriously. be. <laughs> it really is. You get like four I feel like lines. Being a judge in general would be. Agreed. Here are all the lines. Ready? I'll allow it. <laughs> uh, get to your question, Mr. McCoy. Approach the bench. Appro- approach. <laughs> Not You're now, out of counselor. order. Have you come to a verdict? (laughs) (laughs) Now, there is, in all of this very heavy episode, there is at least one funny scene. And that's where they learn about the Cherry Pickers Club. (laughs) And all of the names are hidden behind a portrait in the library. Like it was the fucking Da Vinci Code of finger bangs. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing. Like, Let's take Moaning Myrtle off of her frame. Yes, I was totally thinking it was like it was like Harry Potter. I wanted to like you know, be like on the old Batman where there's like a, a bust of Shakespeare. He lifts the chin and flicks a switch, and the wall spins around. I almost think that the Cherry Pickers Club sounds like a preteen series of novels, like yes. like, <laughs> like, like the, the Babysitters the, the Club, Babysitter Club. <laughs> Sweet Valley High. The I Cherry feel like Pickers it sounds Club sounds like a porn parody of, of the. Now let's look at the second half of this episode. Can't wait. (laughs) Well, given the vague story and Abby's continued bonhomie with Chris, Barbara is willing to offer a plea deal to put the case to bed. Abby's parents insist that Chris go on the sex registry as part of the deal, a condition his family won't accept. So the case goes to trial, a decision even the SVU detectives are unsure about. It's just that these two teenagers both seem like good kids. I don't think they know what happened in that dark room. Do we? Look, he may not realize that what he did was a sexual assault, but Abby didn't make this up. She's just not a manipulative girl. Yeah, okay, but he's not a predator. This is a high school makeout session gone bad. They shouldn't be going to trial. I don't disagree with you. Not our call. 
As the trial begins, Chris goes to a stylist and says, hey, can I get something in an Urkel? (laughs) (laughs) So now the stud looks like a contrite bookworm. Abby testifies the encounter left her humiliated. While on cross, attorney Buchanan uses Abby's kissy face selfies and friendly post-rape text messages against her. When Chris testifies, he regrets mixing booze and dating and knows now the importance of clear communication. But Barbara makes him admit that he never heard Abby say yes to his advances. Later, he confides in Benson that this whole case is murky, while she says the lines of acceptable sexual behavior continue to be redrawn. The jury hands down a mixed verdict. Neither of the wealthy parents are satisfied, and they tussle in the courtroom. And as he's taken away, Abby and Chris exchange glances, which imply neither of them wanted to see the other hurt in this way. Okay, so he is the perpetrator. Yep. But are the writers trying to make us feel some sympathy for Chris? Yeah, and I don't get it. I just don't get it at all. Like, so if this episode were any other classic SVU episode, which would open differently, like the classic SVU episode would open with a girl saying she'd been raped, right? And then they they go find the guy, and then we hear the ambiguous story and see all the social media posts, and then we don't know, right? That is the setup for maybe feeling some sympathy for the perp or the alleged perp because we actually don't know. Like, we didn't see it. As viewers, like, we actually saw it. We saw it play out. We saw him plan it. You know, we saw the friend be like, if I were you, I'd tap that. Like, we saw it. So, yes, they are trying to, I think, build in some sympathy. But even as the mother of a boy, approximately the same age as the boy in this show, my sympathy for him is... Zero percent. Granted, it might be because I know a lot about the real life case, but zero percent. Let's put the little pin on that real life case again, (laughs) Uh, because you're ruining a perfectly good fictional story here. Uh, I mean, if they wanted it to be more ambiguous and they wanted to do this like kind of unusual setup that's not typical for SVU well then make it at least try and make it seem more ambiguous. Like I had no feeling as I was watching that scene that he cared at all about how she was feeling. And that was exactly sort of the point. So at the end, when you're supposed to feel like, he didn't realize, I just sort of want to be like, "Mm, no, come on. Like, that wasn't how your episode started. Also, you know, the whole scene in court, I felt like I was watching a prep school kid, like, doing a college interview. Like, it it seemed like all of his answers. What I did on my summer vacation. Well, it was just like everything he said was exactly right, you know. So coached, yeah. Yes. And, you know, real sympathy, even in the fictional universe, would have been like, he breaks down and is like, I fucked this up. Like, I had a lot of pressure. I didn't know what I was doing. I thought she wanted it. Or, Or is it him not standing up and taking responsibility and saying, I didn't know this. I understand now X, Y, and Z. I don't know. Which is what he did. See, I'm, I'm going to be the, I unfortunately, I'm going to have to be the heretic. And, oh, I'm, don't and do it's it. because I'm the guy. No, it's not because I'm the guy, but because, <laughs> because otherwise what you guys are describing is a five minute episode of SVU. <laughs> Well, we have to have some narrative conflict here in order to keep our attention for 45 whole minutes. Take it up with the writers, not us. Well, but but here's what (laughs) – but you have Abby doing things that makes you lose a little bit of faith in her as a character. You have Chris doing some things that have you gaining some – 
sympathy for him as a character. No, not for me. And yeah, not me either. Not for you. Okay. And I don't. I, I don't lose any faith in Abby either. Neither. Me either. I relate to. Thank okay. you. Just wanting yes. it to be okay. It's the way that it's the way that women are wired. Like we just. Yeah. We're, so let me just like this. Under no circumstance in a fictional television world. <laughs> a f- I, I'm, I'm dead serious. In a All fictional right. television world, are you willing to say you could ever have the boy in that situation sympathetic at all. If it were written differently, sure. But it was what, not then, written. Then set me straight. How would you write it differently so that... I wouldn't show the rape, for one. You didn't see <laughs> the rape. You saw them making out and it getting it getting heavy and then we don't know. Right. I've seen, I saw enough of the rape to know that it was not good for her. We were left with a very rapey vibe. Now, uh, Amelia, I'm going to throw this at you. Okay? okay, this was this was this was set up as as part of the episode. Imagine in this case, a girl goes on a date, mm-hmm. follows a boy to a secluded area, has positive communication with the boy afterwards. Then a few days later, after telling a mother or friend, all of a sudden there's a cop at the guy's door. Chris's mom says that sounds just like a girl crying rape. Given the way it looks, is it not understandable that that mother could come to that conclusion? I still feel like at me, I mean, I'm not a parent, so it's hard for me to say, but I still still don't feel like my reaction would be, oh, she's crying rape, because I don't think, it's just not a, it's not a commonplace thing. And the mom also was like very like, oh, well, I heard, you know, my daughter saying. Listen, I know how these things go, how girls are. We understand. This is very upsetting, ma'am, but right now we're just investigating. No. Before our daughter went to college, I'd overhear her friends talking, saying that they would accuse a boy of rape if he didn't call them back. You know, if a boy doesn't call her back, she's going to lie and say he raped her. And I'm like, come on. Are you who's your daughter? You need to have. (laughs) Let's take a pause and have a conversation about your daughter, because clearly she needs therapy if she's actually talking about doing that. That's like a separate issue. That's whatever this fictional daughter says to her friends. But I I do see. And Kevin, to your point, I'm not going to backtrack at all on my lack of sympathy for the boy. It does make for a complicated legal case Mm -hmm. when there is communication evidence that maybe points to. She was fine. I mean, what did she text back to him? K, which means like, okay, right? When he was like, I had fun. That was hardly anything, by the Um, way. Yeah, but like, you know, it it makes the legal case murky. And certainly if you are the parent in that situation and you were already hardwired to believe that it couldn't possibly be your kid, it could make that complicated too. Uh, Again, let's separate real life and go back to the fictional world for just one second. Every character, Barba, both of the defense attorneys, Benson, Mm -hmm. Dodds, Carisi, everybody there said this is a tough case because of Abby and the way she acted and because of the world of teenagers are going to fumble around and do stuff and try to have sex and get it wrong. Right. It's a hard case to prosecute. Rita, we have a problem. No, we don't. I've already spoken with Abby. And this isn't anything we haven't seen before. Really? Because if you were that boy's defense attorney, you'd tear her to shreds. Put this into context. Abby's insecure. She's non-confrontational. If she were more assertive, we might not even be here. She was assertive enough to text him. She was answering his texts every time. The SVU mantra has always been, it's never your fault. Right. 
you didn't do anything wrong. Unless you sent a text message, Abby. What the fuck, Abby? Why are you sending a text message? Why are you still texting him, Abby? (laughs) So maybe there is a little more ambiguity than you would have admitted at the top of this podcast? Well, in terms of like the the fictional story and in terms of like what the The characters did. Yeah, yeah. the fictional story. There's ambiguity. There is an ambiguity in my belief that in the fictional. Cy Freighter is standing by to talk all about the real case. Don't worry. Even in the fictional story, I'm talking about fictional story. There's no ambiguity for me that she was assaulted and that she's also just trying to make her real daily life getting at school. Like, she's trying to make it okay. Mm -hmm. She's trying to smooth things over. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. I also agree that it makes the legal case complicated and that as her lawyer, I'd be like, why the fuck are you still texting him, Abby? (laughs) (laughs) The rape may not be your fault, but that part's a little bit your fault. (laughs) Not going to lie. You know, it's about separating what's right and wrong versus what is complicated. And I agree with you that all of that is complicated. It is complicated. And there's this really important scene at the end when Barba and Benson get together and they struggle with the... The idea that the rules for what is acceptable keep changing. You know, no matter what the jury decides, you did your job. Did I? It was always a murky case. Exactly the kind that we need to be fighting. The world is changing. We need new rules. Rules of sexual engagement for teenagers? Well, something needs to change. The problem is, is that teenage boys, even in college, don't know what behavior might constitute rape. We need to make the lines clearer. And so does that not leave the rhetorical question hanging? If at some point a man is old enough to know better, does that not also imply that at some point he's not old enough to know better? I think that this episode got a lot wrong, I think, in terms of um, not being a little bit rape apology-ish. Like, it does really back off like at the beginning it shows him as kind of a little bit of a predator and it kind of slowly backs off of that throughout the episode which is really troublesome to me but the message they're trying to drive home in that scene is it's complicated teenagers need to be taught the language around this the behaviors around this and these kids were completely ill-equipped for it that was that's the takeaway i'm fine with that takeaway had it not been for that first 10 minutes of the episode. Well, right, because I think what the what I think that they were missing is is that like in addition to teaching boys and girls how to communicate with each other and to listen to each other and to make sure that whatever they're doing is okay, et cetera, et cetera. We also need to teach children empathy. You know, it, it, if somebody's saying yes, but you're not tuned in to whether or not they're really meaning it or whether they're really saying it from a place where they feel like they have the power like it's an equal footing of to say yes or to say no. A yes is still then is a word. You know what I mean? And you could still end up leaving somebody feeling violated. And I don't feel like we're focused enough on the actual empathy angle of it. You know, I mean, and that's ultimately what it comes down to. Like the boy says, "Well, now she feels raped, but before she didn't," and which was just such an absurd line. Right. Yeah, actually, I think it was the parents who threw that line out. I believe I think he did my too, recollection. Though. Well, I think he was like it didn't seem like that to him at the time. Right, right. And I think that again, I mean, there's an awful lot where where the, I mean, the, the the name of the episode is a misunderstanding, and so the writers are embracing the idea that at some point you can't read the other person right. because you do not have the experience. Do you know what the misunderstanding is to me? What honestly, I assault you. I text you later and say I had a good time. Did you have a good time too? 
and you say yes back, and now I think we're all good. I still know I assaulted you, but I think that you're no, fine with it. But what to if me, it's that's what if it's, that was my first encounter? I thought that's how it was supposed to go. Uh, if that's the case, good for them, but I'm not 100% sure. But I think sure. that's what's driving the narrative force Possibly. behind this. But I will concede absolutely one point. It's very un-SVU in that way. It is. So Let's I- just go to w- the final shot, which is Abby exchanging a glance with Chris, if you can think back to this. Sorry. Well, what do, what do you think her actual feelings for Chris are? Does she also kind of think, like, I wish this had been different because I really liked him? No. Maybe part of me still does. She thinks, I have to go to school tomorrow. I ruined his life and I've ruined my life, and I'm really sorry about that. But she wouldn't be there if she actually hadn't been assaulted. So it's a very very confused set of feelings. Well, first of all, I think we saw in the beginning scene she was and she felt assaulted. So that's that we know that she went home her, and curled up on her bed like immediately right. the only thing there wasn't there was like the the post-rape shower where you always see them like sitting <laughs> in that corner exactly right. yeah. everything else was there right. <laughs> then i guess i would just end it like then why if this is so black and white then why is it that every character including the victim and the perpetrator see this in shades of gray and say that this is murky and unclear uh, not so great writing. That is why every single yeah. person around this says this is gray, this is murky, this is whatever. Are you saying what director it, Mariska Hargitay here's, here's took this saying. script <laughs> and all of a sudden after in season 17 decides, you know. Here's what I'm saying. Maybe maybe it's editing. I don't know. You can't always blame it on the editing. Here's Here's what I'm saying. I'm okay with it being murky and gray. If it's actually written that way and it appears that way to the audience the whole exactly. time. So if yes. you didn't see, it sounds like if, if the opening scene wasn't as explicit or right. le- more was left to the imagination, right. you could go along with the idea that. Maybe it's more gray. Maybe it's more gray. Correct. Maybe it isn't as rough or whatever. Maybe it's just a normal fumbling I would have deflowering of I'd two teenagers. I'd be more open-minded yeah. around that had we not seen that very explicit yeah. assault scene. It is impossible if you know about the real case to separate it, right? I mean, because it is... That's law and order, baby. No, it's not always, though. Sometimes, as we know, it goes wildly divergent, such as when the one episode that was about, you know, dead kids ended up being about vaccines. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know, sometimes it's like major twist, like... Like, this one felt not twisty yeah. at all. Well, the twist could have been that all of a sudden you find out she's like also in the, like the female version of the Cherry Pickers Club. <laughs> well, I thought they, that, have their like, they own were going to make it a portrait off the wall and she had like a bracket, like how many of her friends she could set what up. What would that have been called, the, the girl version of the Cherry Pickers Club? Uh, let's see. <laughs> the Cherry Fishers Club? Like, she, <laughs> oh, the Wingman Club. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> All right, let's take a look at the real-life story that inspired this episode. What could it be? So we haven't... <laughs> a lot of people don't know, but you do, Rebecca. Let's, let's, let's get everybody tuned into this. It's time for Ripped from the Headlines. You think you know who did you it. You think you know who did it. But you don't know who did it. You don't know who did it. Ripped from the Headlines. This episode was inspired by the rape scandal that rocked the posh St. Paul's Prep School in 2014 when Owen Labrie emailed a freshman girl asking for a date. She followed him to the science building where she thought they would make out. Instead, she said Labrie raped her. The date was part of the senior salute. 
an unofficial tradition in which graduating boys compete to sleep with as many girls as possible. When the trial began, the roguish Labrie got a preppy makeover for the jury. His high-priced attorney got the victim to admit she never rejected his advances and even exchanged texts with Labrie afterwards. The girl testified she didn't protest because she froze up during the encounter and for days acted as if nothing had happened, not wanting to cause trouble before graduation. The jury acquitted Labrie on felony rape charges, but convicted him on less accounts of assaulting the 15-year-old. One charge was for using a computer to lure a minor for sex, a crime that will land him on the sex offender registry. Owen Labrie was sentenced to a year in prison, but is currently out on bail while appealing his conviction. So, there are, like you said, many details that are the same. I will just say that in real life... I'm kind of with you that this guy was a lot worse than the fictional character. In fact, I think they kind of brought the fictional character to try to make him more sympathetic because this guy, I mean, I think it's pretty clear from the evidence this guy was the predator. Now, I'm not comfortable actually saying that because this trial has not been fully adjudicated. You have been so comfortable speaking your mind this whole episode. Uh, Yes. However, (laughs) I will say in the real life case, it is not fully adjudicated and I work in a newsroom that is covering the case. So I'm not comfortable saying Owen Labrie is or isn't something. But I will say this. Where the details of this episode diverge from the real life case was one very important thing that this episode left out. Which is what? That Owen Labrie in real life pursued his victim for months and months and months. It was not one asking for a date. It was a school year's worth of pursuit with a lot of communication with other people about what his goals were around that pursuit. And that colors it tremendously. I think there are actually some other details, too. But just put that aside for a sec. Amelia, what do you think about how closely the real-life case mirrored the SVU episode. It seems awfully close. And to leave out that part, though, like it's like everything about it was so similar. But except for that one key, very key part. I mean, I still think that the SVU kid came off like a little rapey D-bag. But, um, (laughs) you know, it's bothersome to think that people who maybe aren't super familiar with the real case would watch that and not realize how long Owen Labrie's, like, pursuit of his victim went on. I mean, this is the thing, though. I am so easily – I'm not surprised anymore by the things that people will apologize for as far as, like, sexual assault are concerned. And so even – I feel like even if they had included that, there will still be those people who are like, well, she didn't say no, you know, so. Right. The pretrial makeover is exactly what happened. Owen Labrie showed up in court looking like Harry Potter, which is not at all like the total super dude bro that he looked like beforehand. Amelia, the detail about the senior salute. (laughs) Oh, God. That it was essentially a contest where they kept score. And that, I mean, to me, I mean, I think that's really the real motive. Yeah. You know, or or at least that's the thing that, that, that doesn't make it a typical... Uh, not that any of them are run of the mill, but that it, it, it puts it above and beyond a misunderstanding at St. Paul's school between two teenagers who are, right. are are still trying to kind of figure out their sexuality and how we interact with one another as sexual individuals. Uh, he was part of uh, uh, of, of a yeah, secret culture. society yeah, culture. He, yeah, he's he, well, he's part of our culture, too. Yeah. You know, our culture allows for that kind of thing. It it 
fraternities do that. I mean, you see that it's so pervasive in, in it's everywhere. And to me, like, that's what's so gross is that there needs to be more focus on how to teach boys not to view women as objects that they try and possess. Well, thanks for being part of a super fucking depressing episode of <laughs> These Are Their Stories. Listen, I'm a woman, you know, this is, this is, I don't know, I feel like women think about this stuff all the time. Yeah. It sucks, but it's true. SVU fans think about it all the time. Oh my God, they really don't. I mean, I found this to be one of the more uplifting episodes of SVU, if I'm being perfectly <laughs> oh honest. Oh my goodness, oh my goodness. I mean, it wasn't one of those ones where they find like, you know, like 12 children living in a storage container you know yeah. like honestly some of those are like jesus or a monkey what? in a basketball <laughs> uh, so we want to thank our guest amelia mcdonald perry where can our listeners follow you amelia well they can follow me on twitter at exo amelia they can this is weird but they can totally find me on um on etsy selling weavings because i make them <laughs> shout out to illuminati weavings um <laughs> and then of course far more far more important than any of that uh they can listen to undisclosed the killing of freddie gray every monday at 6 p.m a new episodes drops and then we have our addendum episodes on thursday at six Rebecca, how can our listeners follow you? They can find me on Twitter and Instagram, if they like pictures of dogs and teenage boys, at Reb Lavoie. But on Twitter, I, I, I do more than just pictures of dogs and teenage boys. I promise. <laughs> that sounds like you should be on the sex registry. Ouch. No. You can track me on Twitter at Kevin P. Flynn. You can also tweet to us at Law & Order Pod or follow us on Instagram at these. RTR Stories. Our newsreader was Cy Freighter. Our theme music was composed and performed by Uncanny Valleys. Line editing by Henry Lavoie. Content assistance from Travis Roy. Lily Flynn handles promotions. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave a review on iTunes. It helps others discover this program just like you did. All clips in this podcast were used in compliance with U.S. Copyrights Act Fair Use Exemption for criticism and commentary. Special thanks to the elite squad of the Law & Order Wiki community for preserving the evidence. If you want to know what episodes we're talking about in our upcoming shows, go to lawandorderpodcast.com. Sign up for our newsletter for a chance to be our next Law & Order Marathon winner. These Are Their Stories was recorded in Square Egg Studio and is a production of Partners in Crime Media. Partners in, in crime, crime media. media.